is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi, and welcome to Fuse and Focus. I'm Rebecca, and today I'm joined by Peter. Hi, guys. By Serafina. Hello. By Luke. Hi. Jess. Hiya. Fiona. Hiya. And Alex. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the U.S. election, millennials being disillusioned with democracy, Corbyn's dismissal from the Labour Party, campaign groups working to support student welfare, and the future of the COVID vaccine and mass testing. Starting us off is Luke with the U.S. election. Hi, so uh, obviously the the big story this week in the global affairs uh, was, of course, Joe Biden winning the presidential election, defeating Donald Trump. Um, He is obviously the oldest elected president of the United States at 78. Uh, And of course, Kamala Harris, who was elected as well, was the is now going to become the first female uh, and African-American and Asian vice president. Uh, Donald Trump is not conceding at the moment uh, as he is making unsubstantiated claims of electoral fraud. Um, But when Joe Biden does become president in January, there's going to be some big questions that will be uh, asked of him. Firstly, as we saw in the election, uh, Joe Biden's supporters, there aren't that many of them. Uh, we've, obviously, there's a lot of people who voted for Joe Biden on the left of the Democratic Party, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, once, who made very clear that she did not support Biden, but wanted to um, make sure that all of her supporters voted for Biden uh, just, to defeat Donald, to, just to defeat Donald Trump. We also had a lot of Republicans who were unsatisfied with Donald Trump's presidency and decided to vote for Joe Biden in this election. So Joe Biden's got support that the people that voted for him on both the left of politics and also on the right of politics. It's going to be a real big challenge for him to try and unite those two factions together to create unity in American politics at the moment. COVID, obviously, his big aim in the presidential election was to to try and defeat COVID. Um, Obviously, Americans love their freedom. So asking him to wear a mask can be quite tricky, I reckon. So it's going to be a big uphill task for him regarding coronavirus. And also a massive part of his campaign was to uh, try and... um, try and eliminate inequalities in America, especially with regards to race um, and with backlash from right wing groups. It's going to be, again, very, very tricky for him to try and um, push forward his agenda. Um, so my first question to everyone really is, how do we see Joe Biden's presidency going in his first term? I think that um, we, we've had this whole big debate at the moment uh, in terms of American politics about the legacy of Trumpism and what Trumpism is. Is it actually an ideology that will continue within American politics once the figurehead of the movement is gone? Um, personally, I don't think that Trumpism is like a codified ideology. I don't think that it has many actual kind of theorists within the Republican Party or supporters. It's more so of a populist movement. So it appeals directly to the masses and uh, specifically addresses their desires, needs and wants. I think what we're going to get with Biden, uh, on the other hand, to answer your question, is a clear ideological break with Trump and a move kind of a step back towards the Obama administration. Because we need to remember, like, for all the praise that's been lauded on Kamala Harris and Biden in, in light of their victory, they are staunch members of the Democratic Center, of the neoliberal kind of ideological center that the party is and the party represented in the Obama administration. So I think we're going to get a move back in terms of international policy on a way more aggressive foreign policy compared to Trump, like we saw in the Obama years. 
but we're at the same time that will be counterbalanced with um, more negotiation on the international stage. Hopefully, um, they rejoin the Paris Agreement, which was recently signed off uh, after the Trump administration. Hopefully, we see a return to the fold with the WHO and other international organisations. So I think there are positives to take, uh, but there will also be, for I guess for people of, of my political opinion, there will be negatives that come with uh, the Biden administration in terms of talking of foreign policy. I agree. I think there's a lot of infighting on the left, um, and I think the Democratic Party is still very pro-establishment, um, doesn't represent everyone's best interests. I think a lot of marginalized people still don't think that Kamala Harris and Biden are going to work for their interests. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a victory, and I do think voting out Trump was a good thing. But personally, this was my first time voting. I voted for Bernie in the primaries, um, not for Biden. Um, but then I did still vote in the U.S. election because I think that was still important and you should still exercise your civic duty. So I'm happy for now, but this is just the win is just a first step. And we need to keep fighting um, for black lives, for people in jail, for people who aren't being represented, for people who are disenfranchised. Um, and I think we need to work towards bridging the gap between factions on the left, because there's a lot of, like I said, infighting and all these little enclaves. Just quickly to add to that, which I completely agree with, I feel like um, to cut Biden some slack based on what I said in terms of his pre previous track record, he has spoken a lot about this idea of bridging the gap and potentially giving people the opportunity of rather than just leading under his own under his own idea and his own scope of rule, kind of bringing people together, bringing various ideas together, people that are unrepresented within the party, uh, kind of bringing this all together and coordinating America in future goals and aims. Does anyone else have any views on what we, what we can we, what can we expect from Joe Biden in his first presidential term? I mean, I don't really have any views. I've got a lot of questions, as in how he's going to sort out the coronavirus mess. Because uh, Trump left a big one. I mean, the first thing is how he's going to. I think you mentioned it, Luke. Is how he's going to get everyone to wear their masks. And I'm just wondering whether anybody's got any ideas that they could perhaps send Biden. Because I'm absolutely clueless about how he might do it. Well, these things normally tend to be decided by the states. So a, an executive order trying to, um, you know, defeat coronavirus by wearing masks or um, doing stuff like vaccines, uh, that, that can't, that, that, all of those things go from the central government. But things like uh, local restrictions, lockdowns, similar to the UK, um, obviously we have local lockdowns here at the moment. That's probably what uh, happens in America with local lockdowns. So issuing a national lockdown in America is, is going to be extremely difficult for Joe Biden to do. Probably not very possible, seeing that uh, a lot of the Republican governors in states will probably be quite opposed to it. Um, so I think you're absolutely right there, Alex, with, um, with Biden being uh, definitely at the bottom of the hill when it comes to trying to defeat COVID. Um, he's going to have to do a lot of convincing with his political enemies and especially with Donald Trump lingering in the background, it's going to be even harder. Yeah, I think definitely because the fact that Biden is now in power doesn't negate the fact that there's still a lot of Trump supporters in America. I think it's at 71 million voted for him or something um, since the last time I checked the polls anyway, uh, which means that kind of Trumpism and the values that Trump kind of represents are still very much alive in America. And just because Biden is in power doesn't mean that those values are going to necessarily go away, especially because, as you just said, Luke, you know, there is still a lot of Republican senators so yes, kind of at the top of the federal system, we've now got a Democrat. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't even really call him left wing, to be honest with you. I think he's like the American left wing, which is still right of centre, I believe. Um, so I, I don't know, I think there's still, it's not going to be as big of a difference as it's kind of, I think everyone's like 
celebrating it as this huge like win for for democracy for the left but i don't know i've kind of lost a lot of faith in america over the past few years and i'm just a bit skeptical about the whole kind of revolutionary aspect of it there's still a lot of trumpism left in america moving moving on from biden we've talked a lot about biden now but what what do we expect now from donald trump obviously he's uh, certain in his heart, in his mind that there's been some form of electoral mess um, and that's prevented him from winning the election. Do we see him being still very much active with undermining Joe Biden uh, up until January or, or, or do you think he will concede at some point? What do we expect? I think the, the transition of uh, power from one administration to the other will definitely not be as smooth as American political tradition dictates. Often when um, the transition period is on, um, the president elect and the president who's incumbent, uh, they exchange, there's a lot of goodwill, there's a lot of um, collaboration between the chosen departments of the, of the president elect and the incumbent president. I don't think we'll see that with Trump. Uh, he's going to fight to the bitter end. We already seen that um, he's taking it to the courts regarding um, the voting, um, like what, what he claims to be uh, voting irregularities and uh, stuff like that. So I, I definitely think that he's going to try and make the transition of power as difficult as he possibly can uh, for Biden. And, and the thing is, like, th th this is like he claims to be for the American people. But if anything, he will now be hindering the American people. He'll be hindering the process of transition of political power. And therefore, he'll be undermining his own nation. But at the end of the day, what we have seen with Trump over the last four years and, and prior to that, he is a man who is deeply self-interested and all his concerns are governed by that self-interest. So I did always think that it was never going to be an easy transition of power. He, like, they, they also have the tradition of um, leaving a note, uh, as they do in British politics as well, where the president leaves a note in the Oval Office. Um, I don't know. I don't know if Trump will leave anything like that. If, if anything, he'll probably just write a few curses and walk off. It's also a tradition that the, uh, the outgoing president attends the inauguration and formally hands over power uh, at that ceremony. Um, and there's obviously a big, a big question of whether or not Trump will attend Joe Biden's inauguration uh, and, and whether or not he will congratulate him on, on, the, uh, on the West facade of the, um, of the Capitol building. Um, but the US election doesn't just affect Americans, as we know, it also affects the whole world. It's commonly titled as the the leader of the west or the the, the leader of the western world and um when, when we discuss the election here in the uk what do we see from the election from a british perspective because obviously donald trump was a big friend of boris johnson um boris johnson really wanted uh, donald trump to carry on purely because uh, he was willing to offer him a trade deal post e uh, post december um, Joe Biden has made very clear that uh, the UK will not be fast-tracked into a trade deal with the US. They will have to go through the formal process. Um, so what can we expect from a Joe Biden presidency here in the UK, not just in regards to Brexit, but in terms of wider issues? It'll have interesting implications in terms of Brexit because we don't know how Biden's going to respond to the rift between the EU and the UK. Um, so he might tend to favour EU countries, post-Brexit and create obstacles for a, a trade deal between the UK and the US. Mm. Carrying on for that, you'll definitely favour Ireland because he's uh, already stated his Irish roots to the whole of the US. I think that also has a big impact on the whole devolution talks within Britain within the last few weeks as well. Whether I, th I think he's going to try and stop that if I'm honest with you. He's not a fan of the new bills within government to break international law. So I think he'll 
try and reverse some of what Boris and Trump have achieved. When uh, when Trump spoke about um, Boris, he quite ungram- <laughs> ungrammatically called him Britain Trump. And the thing is, like, and that, that amuses me a lot still. Uh, but, but the thing is, a lot of the American democratic establishment do genuinely see Boris as Britain Trump. And that will definitely affect any form of negotiations that are had between our government and the future American administration. Um, the, the thing is, we, we, as in, we as a nation, we put our hopes in the fact that Trump would have four more years and that this Anglophone sphere would be created where, there are free, where there's a free trade deal within an Anglo, Anglophone sphere. That is not going to happen. Like Alex, uh, like Alex said, Biden will favour um, working with the European Union, working with the French, working with the Irish, over wor- working with a small island country that is now inward looking rather than outward looking. So I feel like Biden's election upon British politics, unfortunately, under the current state of British politics, does not look favourable for our subsequent national development. I think that kind of calls into question the the place of Britain in the world as well now, because, you know, once upon a time we had this special relationship between the US and the UK, but that was kind of when we had things to offer each other. But now with Brexit, I don't know if we necessarily have anything to offer America, especially if, you know, Biden has to get along with Britain Trump. Uh, is he going to really want to do that if we can just offer him a really shaky trade deal or something, you know, especially with the um, the island, Northern Ireland situation we were talking about last week. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he's necessarily going to be particularly proactive in kind of pursuing that, which obviously isn't great for us, but what can you do? My last question is uh, regarding the election is we saw during the campaign, a lot of people paint Joe Biden as Sleepy Joe, uh, being a little bit uh, behind everything, um, a bit elderly, uh, as he is 78, you know, he's the oldest president elected uh, ever in American history. Do we see Biden, well, I don't want to, you know, say anything too controversial here, but do we see Biden having a huge impact over eight years? Or can we expect perhaps a Kamala Harris presidency at some point uh, within the next eight years? I mean, this is what everyone seems to be banking on at the moment, isn't it? I've seen a lot of talk about the American life expectancy, which seems a bit insensitive, but... Um, There you go. Um, But I think, to be honest, going back to the last question, this only brings up more worries for England because as much as Joe Biden has come out against um, Boris, uh, I think Kamala Harris is, um, she has come out very against uh, Boris Johnson and Brexit and especially the internal market bill and how much she uh, doesn't respect everything that Boris Johnson seems to be doing at the moment. And that leads nicely on to our segment, which is talking about the fact that the US election has allowed um, Kamala Harris and Sarah McBride to ex- exceed into positions of power. So um, as we were just saying, Kamala Harris is the first female vice president um, and Sarah McBride is the first transgender state senator. So we just wanted to talk about the fact that we've kind of got people from minority groups um, in positions of power in America mm-hmm. and what that means. And also that they're making history, they're the first of like things. So Kamala Harris was the first female district attorney of San Francisco, the first female attorney general of California, and the first Indian American in the US Senate, and the first Indian American candidate of the major party to run for vice president. So this is a woman in American politics really making history and kind of campaigning for equality and women's rights in positions of power in government. I think, yeah, personally, as someone who is also half Indian, got the same middle name as Kamala Harris, which is kind of cool. Um, I think it's really cool that we've, you know, finally got somebody who's half Indian in power. Um, just 
I mean, it doesn't mean much for me because I'm not American, but, you know, it's just kind of cool. Um, but I think we mostly wanted to talk about with her, with her the idea that she has had a kind of, I don't want to say marred, but a kind of controversial history of policy. So she kind of seems to contradict herself in some of the things that she kind of puts through. So uh, she has said that what she wants to do is to recognise that not everybody needs punishment, uh, but that many need quite plainly help. So that's in terms of systemic reform for the carceral yeah. system and for criminal justice. She's looking about education for them, like putting people back in schools rather than this punishment system. But then, as you were but saying, then she has also increased the number of convictions for drug dealers when she was the district attorney of San Francisco from 2004 to 2011. So that the convictions of drug dealers went up from 56% to 74% by the end of her term, um, which kind of contradicts what she wants to be saying about making the carceral system more fair uh, and decreasing the amount of people that are put in by increasing the amount of education and reform. Um, so there's been quite a lot of discussion on, I know I've seen on my social media, mm-hmm. um, about the fact that yes, it's great that she is the first Indian, first black, first female vice president, but she also isn't perfect and we shouldn't yeah. kind of let the fact that it, she is all these firsts distract from the fact that she might still not be a great person. Again, yeah. arguable. I think it is important to highlight though, that this is a woman going into American politics. I think they're two separate entities in this place because we have kind of a history of who she is as an individual, but also just the idea that a woman can have this position in politics in America. But I think, yeah, as we're saying, as, again, with Sarah McBride, like this is a new and a first. And I think it's really important that we accept that as just as a position of power and then you can judge the person for themselves. But I think it's a progressive in America. So what do we think? Should we focus to kind of celebrate the fact that she is all of these firsts or do we need to still hold her to account and you know make sure we're not just overlooking all the bad bits i don't think the two are mutually exclusive i think we can applaud the fact that she is the first um the first woman vice president she's the first uh vice president of color um and that is a big feat but then we do also have to think about her poor uh track record on policing issues justice rights issues and it does, uh, the question of identity politics comes into play as well. I mean, Ma- Margaret Thatcher was the first female PM and she didn't have the best track record either. Well, I would say that um, Kamala Harris and I also have things in common. Uh, we're both from the same area of India and her her middle name her, her middle name is also my grandma's name, Sophina. So there is something in common. Um, yeah, I would definitely say those uh, things aren't, aren't uh, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be seen as contradicting one another. I think any politician, no matter who they are, has to be held to account and over the last four years with the Trump administration obviously Trump is someone who doesn't like to be held to account as much as other politicians do um, so I think you know it would be a great a great thing that she does get held to account for her um, past record on mass incarceration um, but I would also say that um, you know she she is I would say that when she was running with Joe Biden I think Joe Biden picked her because she had more of a a human face to the Democratic Party I think more people could relate with her Um, and I think people like the fact that she was she's got very welcoming uh, presence I think when in American politics she's very very popular uh, within the Senate so I would say that um, when it comes to Kamala Harris that she is someone who is should be praised for her, her her journey her story should be she should be held to account but i think we also have to understand that she is probably someone who's going to be very much the person who's delivering a lot of joe biden's policy areas i think joe biden is seen by many people in america as again a return to obama 
um, being, as I said, Sleepy Joe, um, being being somewhat of an older generation. I think Kamala Harris is a bit more youthful, a bit more energetic, and I think she's going to be the one at the forefront of American politics, I'd say, for a very long time. Um, I don't remember the last time uh, that there's been such hype around a vice president uh, coming into office. When we saw Mike Pence, again, he, he wasn't really at the forefront of American politics with someone like Donald Trump, but I think Kamala Harris really will be. Um, so that was, that's going to be very interesting to see. Um, but yes, of course, she should be held to account for her past record. I think what you're saying about the hype around Kamala Harris, I think it comes because we've had Trump. And I think from the misogynistic, sexist, horrible things he said about women, I think it's refreshing to have somebody who could perhaps in, like improve that situation for women, for those who have been campaigning for their rights, that have had their issues debated by a predominantly male uh, Congress, I think it's it's refreshing. I think that's where this hype has come from, from young feminists, from older feminists. I think when she shared her speech on social media, there was thousands of young people posting about it, like um, young like children being inspired by her speeches. I think that was just something quite global and inspirational for anybody wanting to go into that sort of career from any sort of background that she did it. And I think that was most inspirational for me, really, especially after I said about Trump's controversy against women and the Me Too movement came up. Everything regarding that, I think it's just refreshing to see a woman standing up for it. I've seen a lot of people focus on social media on the fact that it's ironic, but really gratifying that um, Trump's presidency will be followed by, um, well, with a VP who's a daughter of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And in terms of her being a woman, she also had that really inspirational quote that she may be the first woman in that office, but she won't be the last. And I think that's something for young girls everywhere to aspire to. I just, um, I want to get back to this idea that was mentioned in the report about separating the idea and the person, because I think politically that's a very dangerous disjuncture to make because it, it alleviates the politician from past errors and past wrongs that were committed. And it elevates an unattainable idea of like the moral virtues that the idea is signifying. So I do think that you have to tackle these issues with a realistic perspective and combine the idea and the person together. While Kamala Harris and Biden represent new hope for America. And um, like, like I said, the idea and the vision is something which we all support and something which we, we all endorse. Holding the actual individuals accountable and not kind of extolling them like, to the mountaintops is a very important thing to do. Like people have mentioned, as, uh, as her past um, job as um, California state prosecutor, she does have a lot of kind of uh, a, a lot of points to be raised about a bad a bad track record. The same with Biden, what I spoke earlier about his um, time in the Obama administration. So I do think that it's dangerous to separate people and ideas. Okay, so we also wanted to talk about the fact that, again, with Kamala Harris and Sarah McBride, so the first trans senator that we were talking about earlier, um, do we think this is an end to Trumpism? Personally, I don't think it is. So this, again, I, this is what I was saying in, in Luke's bit earlier. Um, but Trumpism is still alive and well. You know, just because we have all these people in power, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that racism, sexism, transphobia in America has just all of a sudden disappeared. But it could mean that you know people are seeing more representation of minorities in positions of power. It kind of it, it normalizes it. It shows that these are literally just people. You know, they might have different skin color. They might you know, have a different gender identity, but they are literally just people and it doesn't take away from their ability to do a political job in any way, shape or form. Um, so do we think this is going to improve over the next four years or do we think it might be another situation where, you know, with Obama's presidency, you had eight years of 
a mixed race president, the first one in history. Obviously, everybody knows that was great, but Trumpism kind of seemed to be a reaction to that um, from all of Trump's supporters. You know, it went from having a mixed race president to this culture of just so much racism um, in America. And it seemed to be a kind of uh, a direct response. So do we think that that's possibly going to happen again? Or are we kind of moving slowly towards this more representative egalitarian utopia? I think that, uh, I don't think that we've seen the end of Trump at all. Um, I just, like you said about Obama, I think eight years with the first black president was incredible, but it did sort of spur on the backlash that led to Trump. And I think now with all the sort of chaos that happened around the election and the votes, it just really highlights how blind um, Trump supporters are in following him. Um, I mean, the situation where there was one half of America was saying to stop the vote, stop counting the votes, the other half was saying to uh, carry on counting them sort of highlights that um, sort of cognitive dissonance whereby his followers will always be there. And even if at the next election, I think Trump will probably run again, but if he doesn't, someone else will probably take his place and that will be who that heard sort of fellows, Um, especially with Kamala in as vice president now. I think, I mean, having a woman as vice president, I think is probably going to spur them on even more than last time. So no, I personally don't think it, it, w- it will be the end of him. I was just wondering, do we, do we think this American blindness is partially caused by, in my, in my eyes, this hopeless American dream? Because it seems like a lot of the people who voted for Trump in Florida, <laughs> weren't, they were kind of contradicting themselves and who they were. I know there was a lot of Cubans and a lot of Latinos who wanted to get away from they're leftist Democrats. But personally, I, I, th- I think that there's a, there is a certain blindness in America and it is fueled by Trump's racism. But there's also a blindness in America fueled by his idealism of being this supreme man, you know, in charge of everything. If I just work hard enough, I can o- own everything in the country. I just wondered what other people are. I think the a lot of people who vote for Republicans, vote for them because of their conservative kind of economic principles, um, policy, sorry, um, because people still, I, I wouldn't even say it's just America, I think it's in England as well, you know, I don't want to be hypocritical here, but I think there's a lot of people that genuinely believe that they're closer to being a millionaire than they are to being on benefits. And so they vote for the Republicans who uh, are more forgiving financially towards obviously the higher echelons of society. Um, so they kind of think, oh, well, you know, when I'm a millionaire, I'm going to want lower taxes. So I'll vote for them. Um, again, with this American dream idea, they, the, it's kind of inbuilt into the system that that's what capitalism in America allows you to do. Whereas actually, realistically, most people in America are so, so much closer to just being bankrupt and going hungry than they are to ever, ever earning a million pounds. Um, but they just don't see that. And But again, it's an issue in the UK as well, definitely. It's kind of the capitalistic dream rather than the American one now but again this is just me being a bit of a socialist as happens every single episode so I'll shut up now. (laughs) I think Trump managed to establish a sort of cult of personality where you saw um, you know evangelicals and extremists across the U.S. just blindly uh, loyal to Trump despite regardless of what policies he put out regardless of how much he contradicted his own faith regardless of you know all his problematic um, 
tweets, everything he's done. And those people are still going to stay loyal to him throughout these four years. He might run again in 2024. Um, people are mourning his loss. People are adamant that he could still win um, with these lawsuits he's putting out against swing states. So Trumpism definitely isn't a past era and Trump supporters might even be more incentivized now. Yeah, I'd yeah. agree. I think he has that, um, he has just such a huge following and the timing for him to come in was so perfect with jumping on the bandwagon with social media and a huge social media following. And I think that's also a big contribution with selling this American dream. It seems to be the perfect tool for him and he can like transmit this message so easily and so quickly across the US. And I think it's all just come at good timing. Yeah, I would also, um, I like the the idea that you said, Rebecca, about the, the cult of personality. I'm a history student, so I like connecting present political events with past ones. Um, and there is, un annoyingly, there's a lot of crossovers with Donald Trump and some of the, the Soviet leaders, uh, such as Lenin or Stalin, just in terms of um, not only his, his the cult of personality, people... Uh, see Trump as this kind of hero amongst his supporters but then we see what he does with the media as well with Fox News being basically state media in America at the moment very similar to what happened in the USSR um, with state media state newspapers um, again with accountability um, there was no accountability to Trump Trump did whatever he wanted he, he had a few favored journalists who he would talk to um, and that's again very similar to what happened in the USSR um, with very little accountability of their leader. So I don't want to sound too controversial here, but there is a lot of crossovers between Donald Trump's presidency and some of the more um, brutal dictatorships that occurred in um, places like the USSR and in other communist countries. Um, and uh, it's very, very worrying um, to see that, you know, although that he is now no longer president, uh, that force, that, that, that cult of personality is still lingering in American discourse. And that is very very worrying for uh joe biden but it's also very very worrying for the majority of of the of the american population who didn't vote for donald trump the thing is this um this cult of personality and kind of the the trend that you're pointing to between authoritarian past uh courts of personalities and form of leadership is a trend that you see all around the world today you see it with putin in russia you see it with erdogan in turkey modi in india all these figures paint themselves as strong men, just like Trump did in his tenure as president. Strong men who rule with an iron fist and construct this mythologized view of themselves as leaders and try to subsume society within their kind of own conceptions of how a state should be run. I do feel like this is, this is a trend that has been going on since, uh, since Trump's election, but it's been going on further back since Putin taking over in Russia. And I don't think it's going to stop in the world anytime soon. You've had um, yesterday with the news about Azerbaijan and Armenia with the conflict um, ceasefire peace negotiations being signed. The Azerbaijani Azeri uh, president is also an authoritarian dictator who paints himself in a similar mold. So this definitely isn't an isolated case. And Trump's fall from power in America isn't a triumph of democracy around the world because a lot of nations around the world don't follow a liberal democratic system. Not that that's a system to uphold anyway. Uh, but th there are a lot of similar patterns to like Trump's government around the world are going on. I think as long as we, you know, Trump's body isn't embalmed like Lenin's, we're probably okay. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, there's been a new report that highlights that millennials are becoming increasingly unsatisfied with democracy. 
Um, it was a new study that was done by a collaboration with Cambridge researchers and the Human Surveys Project. Um, and they combined data from about 5 million respondents over 160 countries between 1973 and 2020 and asked them about their degree of satisfaction with democracy. So it was a very big study. Um, and it basically showed that millennials are more disillusioned with democracy than Generation X or baby boomers. Um, and quite a few reasons have been sort of cited as to why this would be. Um, obviously, representatives these days probably respond more to a sort of will of business interests or wealthy donors. Um, the media, like we were just saying, the media can just be so so filtered and manipulated. Um, obviously, there's so many political games, um, close connections are usually how decisions are made. Um, and it's basically just hard to know what the sort of facts are and hard for the youth to feel like they're actually being heard. Um, I mean, in the UK, Brexit would be quite a good example of this as it was a really sort of tyranny of the majority situation where although half of the country did vote to leave, almost half actually voted to stay in. And that half was mainly made up of the younger population. So that's sort of like a classic problem that comes with democracy. And then it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy whereby young people feel disillusioned. So then they don't vote and then politicians start ignoring them because they don't make up much of the turnout and then they become more disillusioned and then they don't vote even more. Um, and it can be sort of applied quite well to the US election. I mean, with the, the postal ballots, um, the gerrymandering, um, sort of the, the way that Trump packed the courts, um, the amount of money that was spent on the election campaign, it all sort of points to, uh, oh, the electoral college as well, the sort of way, the structure of the electoral college and how, um, how the voting system works points to the fact that democracy might not be working as well for the youth. And as the youth become increasingly disillusioned, could lead to a bit of a revamp in democracy. So yeah, I was just going to ask, do you think that democracy should be sort of revamped? There was um, a big argument after the, um, within, within uh, historiography, so like within debates uh, amongst historians after the 1989 um, fall of the USSR and um, the rise of nations uh, from the former Soviet bloc. And um, it was uh, this historian called Fukuyama who wrote about the idea of the end of history and in his view, the end of history was the victory of liberal democracies as kind of the, uh, the new pattern and the new global order. And I do, I do agree. I think it's interesting how now um, it completely contradicts this end of history narrative that some historians have generated where we see young people who are disillusioned with, because um, when we say democracy and that young people are disillusioned with it, it's representative democracy as is exercised in most Western nations. Personally, I think that there could definitely be uh, reassessments to our system. I personally am in favour more of direct democracy and also of devolved measures in politics. So I, I could kind of relate to the study that you're talking about uh, from a personal experience. And I, and I see it with people my age and my friends that I speak to as well about these issues. So I wonder what you guys think as well. Well, I think uh, the problem with Fukuyama's end of history is that he kind of saw um, history and prog progress as linear. So he assumed that as soon as you reach that, 
you know, that end point of liberal democracy, um, you would just stay there. And he didn't take into consideration the fact that there could be uh, waves of fascist parties or regression. Um, and we saw that in, we're seeing that in the UK and we saw that in the US um, with right-wing parties and voter suppression. And I think it was just a bit of a naive paper at the time and hasn't aged well. Um, so maybe, maybe people will regain their faith in liberal democracy, but for now people are becoming disillusioned and it's kind of debunked his theory. I would say that, um, I mean, in this, in this country, obviously democracy has been at the forefront of British politics for the last four years since, since Brexit. Really. I don't want to talk too much about Brexit because I think we're all very bored of it, but um, especially what happened in parliament uh, last year with the Brexit uh, debates, um, there was such a big, it was basically a debate on democracy, whether or not we should employ representative democracy when it comes to things like this, or we should rely on direct democracy. Um, I, I would say that, um, you know, I think it was, I think it was Churchill that said that democracy is out of, out of it's, it's an awful concept, but out of everything that we've got, it's the best, best thing that we have. Um, so I, I definitely agree with that, actually. Um, I think that it is, our current style of representative democracy, although it does bring some problems, um, I think it is the best thing that we have. I think that uh, when we when we look at representative democracy, I think we can reform representative democracy when it comes to things like the electoral system, um, and when it comes to, uh, for example, with MPs who have been arrested and, and recall elections, and they can be much tougher on those things. So when it comes to representative democracy, there can be reforms, but I don't necessarily bind the the idea that. Um, replacing representative democracy with direct democracy would solve uh, would, would would solve all our problems I don't really buy into that personally I mean yeah sorry to go back to Brexit again but you know introducing that aspect of direct democracy didn't really work because you did end up with a tyranny of the majority so I think the problem is that we have a representative democracy but it's just not representative anymore um you know because I think again we're saying about the fact that um a lot of the people that voted a certain way in the Brexit referendum have now passed away um, so it's no longer representative of the literal living population of the UK um, and you know you, you look at the people in parliament and it's not it's the percentages of, of you know women minorities whatever it doesn't match the percentages in the population so literally physically it's not representative enough and then of course you've got uh, like class issues going on the house of lords isn't elected at all so that just represents like the the tops kind of sector of society that that most people don't can't relate to at all so i think it's just an issue of it's i think it's just got an image problem basically democracy at the moment it's 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 still very much like an old boys club you know the same way it was 50 100 years ago and people i think are starting to wake up to that again something we've been talking about over the past few weeks is uh you know people are going out and demonstrating and there's this this kind of atmosphere around the world of people just not being happy with the way that they're being governed um, and I think it again fits into that people aren't with the amount of information that we have uh, I think there's a lot more transparency um, these days with what's actually going on in the world of politics and we can now see that actually we aren't being represented in a way that we should be by our democracy um, so I think it just needs it needs to be just held accountable and made more representative to actually the people that they are governing. Just wondering in this survey uh, did they ask uh, what alternatives they could come up with for uh, types of democracy. So I was just wondering, are a lot of people just complaining about solutions and not really coming up with anything else? Because 
I can think, as Luke said, I can think of a lot of things worse than democracy. I mean, I, I wouldn't like to live in an authoritarian state. It's just plain and simple. I, I think democracy comes with freedom of expression. And those two things are very important for a functioning society. So I was just wondering whether they came up with any proper uh, societal function. Um, no, I don't believe so. From um, the articles that I was reading about it, it was more about um, the results that they found. I think just because it was quite extraordinary and they weren't expecting to see such a sort of high number of especially um, the millennial generation that just had such discontent with democracy. So it didn't say, yeah, it didn't, like you said, it didn't pose any solutions. So, which, yeah, I guess that is actually quite a big um, issue because unless other systems are proposed, then it doesn't really get us anywhere. I mean, it could just show people who want power, the cracks to go to power. People that we don't want in power in the first place. That's my only worry that when these opinions come out and show this split in society, it just lets really bad people get to the top very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, but interestingly, um, obviously with the US election, so after this study only came out last week or so, I think, um, but the US election turned out to have the highest turnout in 120 years. So it sort of says maybe sort of millennials aren't as disconnected as it suggests. Um, or maybe that was just a sort of rare occasion because of the circumstances i think when it comes to turnout i mean um it, it also in the uk in the 2019 election and in the 2017 election um there has been actually an upward trend in terms of voter turnout um and i think that's less to do with people being um more a bit less i think it's less to do with people being more interested in democracy i think it's more more to do with how pivotal and vital those elections are and in recent history, obviously in 2017 with with Jeremy Corbyn and a lot of people found a lot of um, interest within that. And then 2019 with Brexit being the huge issue in the election. Um, so I think that up with the upward trend of voter turnout is is actually due to politics being more important, I think, in the 21st century than perhaps it was in the early uh, noughties. I think um, on this on this topic of um, democracy and politics, we'll move on to uh, the British field from the American and onto the story of um, the accusations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. So in late October, former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn was suspended by the party after watchdog report compiled by the Equality and Human Rights Commission found the party failing to take proper action against allegations of anti-Semitism during his time in charge. The report titled Investigations into Anti-Semitism in the Labour Party found that Labour was, quote, responsible for unlawful acts of harassment and discrimination linked to anti-Semitism. The report presents a strong break by Keir Starmer, Labour's current leader from the Corbyn era and one of the party's most persistent scandals. But Fuse investigates what are the ramifications of the report for the party, the future of Corbyn as a member and the issue of tackling systemic racism within British political establishment. The report stated that it found, quote, a culture within the party which at best did not do enough to prevent anti-Semitism and at worst could be seen to accept it. It went on to the state that it found that Corbyn's office had politically interfered on 23 separate occasions regarding the anti-Semitism complaints. Upon the release of the report, Starmer called it 
a day of shame for the Labour Party and vowed to implement a, quote, culture change. Whilst Corbyn responding to the statement explained, the scale of the problem was dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. In response to the damning report, Labour announced the suspension of Mr Corbyn, who is now pending an internal investigation by the party, which stated it was, result it was resulting from, quote, in light of his comments made today and his failure to, to retract them. Starmer has since looked to unite the party, urging Labour to replicate Joe Biden's election victory after the Corbyn scandal. According to Democratic Party and Labour sister parties, he had warned Corbynistas not to, quote, tie up Labour in a legal battle over Corbyn's suspension. As the leader suggested that Biden's win against Trump is a lesson for the party to move back towards the centre rather than the hard left, which is often identified with Mr Corbyn. Labour had been plagued with allegations of anti-Semitism since 2016. During the tenure of Corbyn as Labour leader, the allegations have led to divisive rows within the party. The EHRC report found Labour responsible for three breaches of the Equality Act. First, political interference in anti-Semitism complaints. Second, failure to provide adequate training to those handling anti-Semitism complaints. And third, issues of harassment, including the use of anti-Semitic tropes and suggesting that complaints of anti-Semitism were fake news or smears. The report seems to be just the start of the party's long overdue reckoning with itself. It has been 10 years since the Labour government passed the Equality Act, a step which offered protection to people against discrimination based on age, disability, sex, race, religion, sexual orientation and gender reassignment. Yet it is now Labour which is in need of reform within itself. Fuse and Focus has asked the Student Labour Society for a statement, but no response was offered. The University's Conservative Society offered this statement on the issue. Manchester Young Conservatives are very, very happy that Jeremy Corbyn has been suspended from the Labour Party. It's about time that the Labour Party has got rid of uh, out-and-out anti-Semites. Uh, you know, there's never been someone that's been so anti-Semitic. There's never been someone that's uh, supported anti-Semitic terrorists or excused anti-Semitic members uh, via interference. However, I think Keir Starmer has a lot to answer for. Uh, Keir Starmer saw how anti-Semitic uh, the NEC was and saw how anti-Semitic Jeremy Corbyn was. And I think he's got a lot to answer for and questions need to be asked. Catherine McLean, a young Labour representative for the South West and a person of Jewish heritage, provided this statement for Fuse and Focus, talking on the issue of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. In terms of um, getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn, I think it was probably um, quite an extreme move from the, the leadership and it has caused quite a lot of upset to the Jewish community, um, just in terms of an uptick in the amount of abuse we're going to be getting. Um, it felt quite like oil on the fire, and especially because it came as such a surprise to everyone. Um, so I don't think that suspending him was necessarily the right thing to do. Um, but in terms of uh, his culpability and the anti-Semitism of the party, um, I always think back to the, uh, the mural and the comment that he made on Facebook about that, which is always really stuck with me, because that is either an example of like extreme incompetence or just pure and simple old-fashioned anti-Semitism. I, I also resent the way that the um, narrative has been around the, the smearing in the media. Um, I feel like it really infantilizes 
the Jewish community and people who may be upset by the anti-Semitism because it sort of implies that we don't have sort of ability to understand what the media is doing and um, have some sort of literacy about how right-wing it is. Like, I completely understand that the right-wing media um, has attached itself onto this issue, but I also understand that there's there is something to attach itself onto. Overall, it's been a really tough few years to be Jewish in the Labour Party, and um, I think we're all sort of struggling a little bit, especially about where we should go and whether we still belong. Um, so it was nice in the wake of the AHRC to for them to carry out such a big move, but I'm not necessarily sure it was the best one or the one that would have brought the most peace um, and I wish they would in fact it felt like a sort of they were just trying to fix the problem very quickly and sharply. We also received a comment from an associate of Catherine's who would like to stay anonymous who had this to say. So just yeah just following on from what Kat just said um, I think there's no doubt that Jeremy Corbyn and his team either were either racist, anti-Jewish racists or so incompetent that it should have precluded them from leading a major political party. But I don't think that is even the point that we should be discussing at this point. Um, after the report that said that Labour Party in fact broke the law due to its handling of anti-Semitism, the right response would have been humility and to listen to the Jewish community rather than claiming it had been sort of overstated for, for party, party political or factional reasons. Um, and as the Labour Party is trying desperately hard to win back the trust of the Jewish community, I think the new leadership made the correct decision. And from a purely sort of strategic element, uh, it's obviously a huge issue in the eyes of many voters um, and... For a party that is trying desperately to cast off the image of being anti-Semitic, it was strong and firm leadership. That does raise, that doesn't necessarily answer the question of whether it will actually help, it, but it certainly shows a sort of firm-handedness that I think probably will encourage a lot of members of the Jewish community that the new sort of Labour Party is serious about anti-Semitism. However, whether that helps internal... Labour Party sort of politics is another issue and possibly another can of worms, but I'm not so sure about that. But anyway. Additionally, Fuse and Focus spoke to a Mancunian opinion writer, Kerry McCall, on the topic of, of an opinion article she wrote for the paper, which provided a balanced and compelling argument as to why the issue of anti-Semitism in the party needed to be taken seriously. Here we have attached the interview. And uh, the first question for you, Kerry, is as an individual who joined the Labour Party during the ushering in of the Corbyn era, what were your hopes for the progression of the party? And also, were you aware of any systemic issues of anti-Semitism, as highlighted by the EHRC report existing within the party? So um, I joined the Labour Party when I was quite young. I think I was about 16. And I just sort of joined the party because I thought they aligned with my views and I wanted to feel like I was more um, interactive with politics um, and it 
did become clearer as the years went on that anti-Semitism was an issue. It was in the news quite a lot. Um, and I think it was during the 2019 election last year where I kind of realised if things don't change, I'm going to withdraw my membership. And I kind of did think of withdrawing my membership, but I thought if Labour loses this election, Corbyn's probably going to step down and that means there'll be potential for new leadership that could solve the problem. So I hung in there and that is what happened. But I definitely think there are, unfortunately, examples of anti-Semitism, even though sort of the report itself focuses more on sort of insufficient um, investigations rather than the accusations themselves. There have definitely been accusations like, for example, 2016 Ken Livingstone, the ex-mayor of London, yeah. made a comment about... Um, Hitler being a Zionist, which was sort of, that's obviously a problematic statement to make. Um, and I just think, you know, a lot of it is to do with social media and Labour members sort of liking posts that have anti-Semitic tropes in them or suggesting that Jews are wealthy, just sort of all these elements of a Jewish conspiracy, which I think is where a lot of the problem lies. Mm um based on this and um kind of where the problem lies within the labor party do you think that the downplaying of the report by corbyn and uh sections of the party especially on the hard left show culpability to the ramifications of the report um yeah i think i'd have to agree with that i think in corbyn downplaying the issue is kind of controversial for him to come out and say we've got a zero tolerance policy towards racism and from to also say one anti-Semite in the party is too much, but then to go on and sort of downplay the number of cases by saying it's only 0.3% of the party. If you consider that there's like 550, 100, 550, 100,000 members of the Labour Party, 0.3% is still quite a significant number of members who are being accused. And I think to downplay that is just usually problematic. It's dismissive and kind of complicit in the issue in a way. I think this kind of leads us on to the next question, which uh, is that many people, especially on the right and in terms of mainstream media, have used this issue and kind of seized on it to blame um, the hard left with identifying with anti-Semitic views. Do you think that there exists this kind of trend within the hard left of British politics and also international politics of kind of uh, constantly holding on to these tropes of what they view uh, Jewishness as? Yeah, I think, I think the issue is that I just think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what anti-Semitism is. I think a lot of people just don't really recognise anti-Semitism when they see it. And I think that was the thing that I found most striking, like in response to the Human Rights Commission report, um, just so many people didn't seem to recognise anti-Semitism as it was happening in the Labour Party. And I just think, even though it might be a minority who are actively being anti-Semitic, it's a failure of other people on the left to recognise that, that makes the problem so much bigger, because it just creates this whole nature of complicit behaviour and people just don't see that there's an issue when there really is. Mm. Um, also go, going off on that, uh, which is something that someone raised to me, which I found quite interesting, was the fact that uh, what tabloids have seized on is kind of this political show trial on Corbyn, 
whereas they've omitted the actual elements of anti-Semitism. So they've inflamed the political story of Corbyn's dismissal without addressing actually the anti-Semitic content within the party. And yeah. in order for us, like personally, I think in order for us to move forward beyond that, we need to actually address the issues that have been raised in the report rather than just making a political showing of Corbyn and not actually talking about what are the consequences of anti-Semitism and how is it affecting people? Because there's no talk of the whistleblowers who exposed this and their experiences. It's all on Corbyn being an anti-Semite. Yeah, I do think there's been a lot of focus on Corbyn and on Starmer as well and just it's sort of become a showdown between the two of them and I don't think that's that's deflecting away from the actual issue I don't think Jeremy Corbyn himself actually is an anti-Semite I don't think he's a racist and I think the people who need to be um sort of you know brought to the surface here are other members of the party um and just putting all focus on Corbyn is distracting away from the important issues. And I just don't think Corbyn actually should be at the forefront of this at all. But that's what's, that's what's happening and that's kind of an issue in itself, I think. I think that leads us nicely to my next question, which is in your article, you wrote they, uh, by that, the Labour Party are no longer refusing to accept wrongdoing and are beginning to reckon with their mistakes. Uh, so the question is, regarding issues of racism and poor party infrastructure to counter such issues, where do you think Starmer will be directing the party in tackling such issues in the future? Uh, I mean, I'd like to hope so. That's sort of why I voted for Starmer. I did vote for Starmer in the leadership election. He put a lot of emphasis on tackling anti-Semitism, which was such a topical issue. I think it was really important that he did that. And he did, you know, him and Angela Rayner did... Um, set up a complaints procedure as soon as they were elected and it was met with a lot of positive response by Jewish leaders saying that they were going to um, sort all outstanding complaints of anti-Semitism. So I think, I obviously don't know what's going to go down in the future, but I am, I am hopeful from what I've seen so far. Um, and finally, some on the left have claimed that this isn't necessarily about the actual issue, but it's more so about a political purge of Corbynista elements that still exist within the Labour Party, uh, whether it is within the Houses of Parliament or at the grassroots level. Do you think that this is also kind of um, a, t a tool for Starmer to move Labour back to the centre and remove those elements associated with Corbyn? Uh, yeah, I think this is one of like the most crucial parts of this whole issue is that, you know, it's being pinned on, on leaders when actually this is like a problem and it should sort of be treated as an issue with the party rather than the leaders. And I don't think it's necessarily, I think it's just something that needed to happen a while ago and it's only just happening now because there's new leadership who are dealing with the situation in regards to attacking the left allegedly I think Labour's main focus at the moment needs to be winning the next election and ousting the absolute shambles of the government that we've got now and unfortunately the reason Corbyn lost the last election is because he did fail to attract sort of floating voters and I think Starmer in sort of moving away from the far left of the party is sort of seeking to do that and I'm hoping that it'll be successful. I don't think it's an attack on the left, I think it's 
a kind of new direction in trying to get the party to win the general election. Great. Thank you for the interview, Kerry. And uh, hoping for more contribution between the Mancunian and uh, Fuse FM. Thank you very much. So now I'd like to open up the question to you guys. Um, firstly, what do you think? Um, it, what What do you think? Uh, what are the ramifications that the report holds for the Labour Party? Well, I think it's a long, uh, long, long journey before um, many Jewish people feel that the Labour Party is a uh, an acceptable party to vote for. I think um, I watched an interview with uh, Luciana Berger, who was a Labour MP who was bullied out of her constituency in Liverpool by um, anti-Semites anti within the party. And she said that although she welcomes Keir Starmer's move um, to uh, to get rid of or to suspend Jeremy Corbyn from the party, she says that it's not the end of the road. It's still a long journey, a long journey ahead before many Jewish activists uh, within the Labour Party and many Jewish people outside the Labour Party feel that the Labour Party is a home for them. Um, but Nevertheless, I think it's uh, an important step forward that Keir Starmer has done. Um, already, I think it's made an impact on people I know who are in the Labour Party who are Jewish. Um, but yeah, as Luciana Berger said, it's a long journey ahead for um, for the Labour Party in terms of getting back on side the, the Jewish vote um, and um, yeah, basically making amends with the Jewish community who have been victimized very very heavily by um, a lot of people within the Labour Party over the last five years. I do think it's interesting that anti-semitism, I think Kerry said this in her article, but anti-semitism is a form of racism and I know so the, the the Conservative Party have come under quite a lot of fire for you know certain Boris Johnson basically um, making racist comments and so I think it's really I don't, it's, it's odd that you don't really see many reports of this actual anti-Semitism in Labour coming out. So I know, I know that there's been uh, a lot of ramifications for it recently, but up until then I hadn't really seen any like, evidence of the actual anti-Semitic acts or words themselves. I do think it's really interesting that, that that's not really been held to, uh, held to account up until recently, whereas in other parties, other different forms of racism are. Um, so I think it kind of highlights the, the fact that anti-Semitism is still quite a big problem in society you know it's not seen as uh, as big of an issue and yet it's still kind of there under the surface really insidiously kind of affecting our political system and um, so I think it's good that it's finally coming out and people are I, I'm saying the words being held to account a lot today but being held to account um because yeah it's it's awful that really in 2020 in this day and age and in our society that this is still happening um, what do we think that it holds for Mr. Corbyn's future? Because we have elements of the left saying that this is all uh, overly exaggerated in order to, in, in order for a political manoeuvre to occur in the purging of uh, hard left-wing elements of the Labour Party. Whereas other people think that this is this has been downplayed and Corbyn needs to be reckoned with and needs to be expelled for the party. So, what are our opinions on this? I think whether or not you uh, whether or not you agree with the dismissal, this has now sort of tarnished his reputation, and he's become almost too controversial a figure. So making a comeback would ha you'd have to take in a lot um, into the equation. Um, it, it would just lead to big public debate, I think, and the Labour Party would have to consider whether it's worth it for the party. I think it's interesting um, the way in which anti-Semitism is conducted. Uh, I think. A lot of racism in society, um, and I saw this. I'm not. This is not my 
this is not my comment, this is what I've read on Twitter from someone who is in the Labour Party and who is Jewish. A lot of the anti-Semitism that takes place is not is different to a lot of the other racism. A lot, a lot of racism when it comes to anti-blackism or Islamophobia, is, it's, a, it's a push down. You're pushing down these people. They're putting them down the bottom of society. These people are scum, etc. Um, but with anti-Semitism, you're almost pushing people up. You're saying that these people are, are, are the cause of, for example, I don't know, anti-Semitism claims, but they are the cause of, of climate change. They are the cause of all of these world problems. So you're pushing them up to a position where they are responsible for everything that's going on in the world negatively. So it's a different form of racism than a lot of the other racism that occurs in society. And that's why I think that a lot of people within the Labour Party on the left um, don't necessarily see it very obviously because it's very, very disguised, very hidden, as Severina just said. Um, so I think that's the problem that um, that Labour Party had is that is that problem that it, it, although it was very obvious to a lot of people, um, it was very different to other forms of racism. Therefore, it was therefore people did not take it as seriously because they didn't they didn't really get it, which is obviously very wrong. Um, I think the problem, the whole thing with Jeremy Corbyn is very interesting. I think. Yeah, as Rebecca said, whether or not you do disagree or agree with the suspension is another thing. Um, but I, I, what I've seen from this from this this debacle that happened a couple of weeks ago when when Jeremy Corbyn was suspended was that a lot of the focus was on Jeremy Corbyn's suspension and very very little focus was given to the whistleblowers of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. These people who had stood up and called anti-Semitism out on numerous occasions and were ignored repeatedly. How much coverage was there of the media towards these people? The people that blew the whistle that said this was out of order. I actually know some of the Jewish um, whistleblowers within the Labour Party um, that, that left the Labour Party because of the horrific anti-Semitism. And I don't really see that much media coverage of their experiences. I think it's been, you, you, the media put Jeremy Corbyn into the limelight within this. And there's been a lot of big uh, ignorance, I think, from the media when it comes to the experiences of ordinary Jewish members. I think, I think that's where there's been a quite quite shoddy journalism, I think, really, when it comes to the reporting of this. You could, um, I, I completely agree with that point, because you could uh, argue that this has been ramped up to basically be a political show trial of Corbyn, who has been kind of taunted by the media for years and years, and it has completely diminished from the actual issue of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party and addressing those issues and shedding light on them. So I completely agree with that. I feel like the media, as it often does, is sensationalising a story that it doesn't want to read about and read into too much. So it is very much more so of a political show trial about Corbyn rather than shedding light on issues of anti-Semitism. And this kind of leads to my final question, which is kind of uh, broadening out this debate in terms of um, what, what, where does this take us moving forward on general issues of tackling systemic racism within British politics? Because we already had mentions of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, obviously anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. So where do, where do you guys think, like, where does this take us now where we have this issue? Um, how, how do you think it will be addressed or how would you like it to be addressed? I mean, I think it's great that they're addressing this systemic racism, like you've said. And I think Keir Starmer is a great fresh face and it's good that he's dealt with this early on. I think this is a big issue for Corbyn. It's like you said, it's been going back to 2016 and not much seems to be done about it. He seems very, like, not very keen to address the issue. But I think going forward, my issue with it, as is Serafina pointed out, we know and there's so much proof of the racist things that Boris Johnson has said. And there's just so much less focus on him and his 
what he said than Jeremy Corbyn's. I think that's a huge issue as well that needs to be dealt with and he, as you say, needs to be held accountable for that as well. I think it's tricky though because it's so tied up with the whole Israel-Palestine situation. I think there's, it's really difficult to make a decision and like, uh, like not punish people but kind of you know say that like this is acceptable and this isn't because it's so closely linked with that whole conflict and I think everyone's just very scared of making a judgment there or taking a side and you know if you say something's anti-semitic it's like well are you taking a certain side in that conflict and I think I mean I, I personally you know I don't think I know enough about that whole thing to to, to make a judgment myself. So I can understand, you know, why there's people are very kind of tiptoeing around it in the media because it's such a huge issue. And it, it isn't, you know, it's not as if somebody's coming out and saying, oh, I'm, I'm pro-Israel, I'm pro-Palace or whatever, but the, it's kind of insinuated depending on people's views, um, if that makes any sense. So I think it's just like, it's because it's so intensely tied to a, a world conflict. It's just like a larger issue at hand than it is just in our society. <laughs> Moving on to our next story, uh, we'll be covering um, the lack of uh, support for students from the university and how student campaign groups are coping with that. Um, so people might have seen the University of Manchester came under fire last week when fences were erected around Fallowfield campus, uh, leaving freshers in accommodation feeling trapped and infantilized. And although the fencing was allegedly introduced to regulate people coming in and out of halls and wasn't an actual mechanism to lock people in, students felt betrayed by the university. The prison-like barriers are said to have cost £11,000 and were torn down by student protesters on the same day they were installed. Catherine and Billy, the co-presidents of the Safer campaign, had this to say about the fencing. It really was the last straw for people. I think it was a physical representation of just how little the university thinks they need to let us know about what they've decided for us. Yeah. Like no one was notified about that, which I just find incredible. Yeah, it's a it's a dismissive act that assumes that um, they know what's best for thousands of people's safety and that people are just going to keep calm and carry on. And um, I think that it's a very dangerous attitude to have um, when you're bearing in mind that you're responsible for thousands of young people, um, a lot of whom are extremely vulnerable and we're living in a really scary time right now that's constantly changing and we don't have um, we don't have a lot of idea about where we're going to be in a year's time, in two years time. So to make massive decisions like that is really jarring and really scary for people. And, um, and as Cathy said, I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back. The Mancunian interviewed University President Dame Nancy Rothwell about the incident, and the interview is available as a special episode on our Fusion Focus Spotify channel. Students feel insufficiently supported by the university during these uncertain times and are demanding more academic, financial and emotional support. Student campaign groups have been organizing protests to make their voices heard by the university. Among these groups are the 9K for What campaign, U of M Rent Strike, Students Before Profit, and the SAFER campaign, which stands for Student Action for a Fair and Educated Response. Jess and I attended a SAFER protest over the weekend, and here are some of the snippets of the impassioned speeches we heard. Our aim is to have the university put a concrete plan in place to ensure the well-being of students. 
prioritizing students' physical safety during the pandemic and extending suitable support and care during isolation periods. Furthermore, this plan must encompass the mental well-being of students, vastly improving the current support available and establishing further support services specific to the student COVID-19 experience. Secondly, we demand transparency. This action plan must be communicated clearly to and approved by students. Yeah. Yeah. I have a tip for UOM. If you're so scared about money and making sure that you get our money, then maybe you should stop treating us like petulant little children that can't be trusted and you might find that we're a bit more keen to give you our money. So this is a call out now. If this is publicised in any way, University of Manchester. Hello, SAFER would like to get in contact with you and we would like to talk about how unfairly students have been treated and how the hell you're going to fix up for us. Thank you. We also had the chance to talk to members of the 9K for Work campaign and this is what they had to say. So we're from a group called 9K for What, um, which is set up by students and other Mancunians in solidarity with the students. Um, why we're protesting today is because we've been scapegoated, blamed for the pandemic. Uh, students have been trapped in their halls with really inadequate support and we're paying £9,000, higher than £9,000 a year for substandard tuition online, which is just not the same as in-place learning. Yeah. It's not necessarily the problem that it has to be online, it's the problem that the university knew that they would have to put it online um, well in advance, before September, and still chose to bring students back into accommodation so that the landlords could profit from the extortionate halls and so that the unis could profit from the extortionate fees. Yeah, like it's disgusting the way we've been treated really, we've been lied to, we've been all told to come back the uni knew this would happen. It's harmful to the students and it's harmful to the wider community in Manchester as well. They've just shown a blatant disregard for student welfare, for the welfare of other Mancunians, and they've lied to us and told us that we'd have mixed teaching when that just clearly wasn't the case. We were told a week before our term started that it was all going to be online. So they're protecting themselves really and their own financial interests. And it's just disgusting the way that the uni bosses have treated us really. If you want to support any of these campaigns, you can share their infographics, appeals, and petitions available on their social media platforms or reach out to them on socials. So I just want to know from everyone, how do you feel about the lack of university support for students and how has it affected you? I think from attending the protests on Sunday with you, I think it was very clear that there was just such a disillusionment between the students and the senior people in charge of the university. There was so much heart put into the speeches we listened to and so much kind of emotion linked to this whole mental health crisis we've seen in the halls and how people are just really struggling right now to to carry on with university as well as having these strange impositions put on them like fences just a random um thing to wake up to on a morning which 11k what was what was the point in spending this extortionate amount of money on something which wasn't even there for 24 hours it was it was crazy and i can completely understand why people in halls are just wanting to protest and wanting to speak out about their experience because it was certainly nothing like I had in first year. You know, I never had this, I had a great first year, but as the second year now, I can feel sorry for these students, but also kind of relate to them and want to get some more information from Nancy Rothwell. You know, that interview with her, she had no definitive answers. She didn't even know who had erected these fences. And it was all these probabilities, maybes, I don't know. And I just don't think that's fair at all on first year students or the whole student um, cohort.
Yeah, what we heard a lot from people who attended the protests was complaints about the lack of transparency from the university and that there didn't seem to be clear communication between staff and higher ups at the university, for example, with the fencing incident. Um, and we clearly just need better communication between staff um, and the administration and then between the administration and students as well, because we are we need more support. We're paying so much money for this experience for our education and we're definitely not getting what we're paying for. I definitely think um, there's, there's two sides of the argument in terms of I can see uh, the university put these this fencing up as kind of like diverting traffic and kind of like creating like a COVID friendly walkway, which obviously in principle, it makes sense. But then you've got this whole issue of just a total lack of communication, as you guys have already highlighted from the university, which I, I just, frankly, it's ridiculous. And I don't think this is a first time issue in terms of the university not, not handling things either with transparency or just, just handling it well, like to begin with. I've been a student in Manchester for four years. I'm doing my master's here now. And I've never, and I've had the same thing from my friends who are still in their studies in their fourth years and friends who have finished their studies after their bachelors who have said that they've never felt as part of the university community. And I do feel like the university struggles with that, of kind of fostering that kind of community and fostering that dialogue between students and um, students and lecturers and students and the institution. And I feel that's been highlighted and exasperated since the COVID outbreak even more so. And it's kind of culminated, culminated in this process of the first years tearing down the fences as a result of fear and confusion, which you can understand them for. Also, the idea of communication that there's the I know that I only got an email through today, which is the tenth, um, about what the plans are for next semester. Um, so I think they've not fully kind of um, made everything concrete yet, but they're only just telling people that you know they're going to be able to do things. Um, I think it's STEM subjects might not be able to do everything online next semester um, and from speaking to a couple of international students about this it's been a real issue for them um, I know you know they need to kind of there's people from Korea for example who are needing to get a student visa so they can prove that they're doing something instead of having to be um, conscripted into the military for their service like compulsory military service year so that's like a massive deal for them and it's just because the university hasn't acted quick enough to say you know we will be online you will be able to study next semester they've literally they're having issues with the government trying to get them into the army like it's it's, it's it just feels like certain people's situations really hasn't haven't been thought about particularly well um and i think it it's it's been a massive issue with um the das as well disability access yeah, yeah. i'm not sure what it's done for but um I know yeah i spoke to that. um a student who wrote like quite a poignant post on um love I think about her experiences with DAS and how she just received no support. She was um, lack of communication. She suffered with dyslexia and just, I think her laptop had broken and she just couldn't access any support. She was struggling to follow things, online lectures, keep up with the speed of having to read everything online. And the communication was, there was nothing. And it took her talking to me, who she's a third year student, I'm a second year student, to message the press office and say, look, can we have a comment from you about what's happening and why this student isn't being supported in DAS, for her to even get in touch with the head of DAS. Like it, it took too much for one student to actually get the help she needed. And thankfully now like she's in communications with the head of DAS and hopefully getting some more support. But I just think that step, there was a miscommunication with how this student could actually get the help she needed just because of this online learning, which should have been sorted before we came back to university.
also no, there's just really simple stuff like um any student who's hard of hearing can't do her lectures because there's no subtitles on her lectures and it just even though you know the university said that they were going to make um you know uh, concessions to to allow everybody to study they just don't seem to have put into practice everything they're saying and then when they try and explain it there's just no substance to their answers um yeah i don't know defenses just seems to be uh, a continuation of this lack of communication and kind of nonsensical things that they seem to be doing in order to try and help the situation that just don't do anything that the students actually want I think I'm I'm very lucky in the sense that um, I'm I'm not in student halls at the moment, um, and I can only imagine how how horrific it would be um, living in student halls with the lack of support that the university is offering. Um, but from my experience, which is what Rebecca's question was originally, um, for me, third year writing my dissertation, the fact that the library closes at half four every single day is absolutely ridiculous. I think um, you know we I know we've seen Ali G extending their opening hours. I think seven thirty um which is understandable but you know for me personally like i need books in the library the stuff that i need for my dissertation i can't find every source online it's just not possible so i need to go to the library and find resources there um and that's not being opened longer than 4 30 which is a massive problem i do kind of i do understand the booking system i think that is understandable with obviously covid at the moment i think it's the only way that they can make sure that everyone going there is properly safe and secure um however just the opening hours times i just think is absolutely ridiculous the fact that it closes at half four um when you know a lot of us are in the stage now of you know putting sources together for our dissertation and the fact that we just can't do that with lockdown now, because we can't go to cafes and there's really nowhere we can go outside of our uh, homes, the study spaces are booking out very quickly. So I just had a look and I even saw a complaint on U of M Love today where it seems fully booked. Ali G and the main library don't have any spaces left for the rest of the week. So that's one main resource that's been stripped from us as well. I think it is baffling how little I, they seem to have like considered even things like the DAS students and even down to like every like small things for every student I think students normally live in houses from like four to ten and things like having zoom calls with like I don't know six seven of you on them every day at the same time it doesn't work and even the teachers and the lecturers seem to be having big issues with this I know I've had like two three classes cancelled just because the teachers can't get onto good wi-fi and that just seems like just a really simple thing that the uni just could have provided for them um I'm uh, new-ish to the uni um, as I've just started my master's this year but so I'm not sure if this is an ongoing issue but would you say that it is just sort of a adaption problem to COVID or is this like an instrumental problem within the university? I think it's just COVID I've never had an issue with it before um, but I think it just I think it it's kind of put into focus uh, the fact that a lot of people you know with the strikes last year a lot of people aren't really happy with the provision of education that the uni are giving us anyway and then obviously now that the pandemic's happened everything's just gone so much worse um and it's all just been exacerbated um but i mean you know to the strikes last year we it's i think it's just you know everyone's conveniently forgotten about it because there's obviously something much worse going on um but i don't know anybody that was happy with what happened with the strikes last year so i think generally there's a, a disconnect between the senior leadership team and, and the student body but also the staff as well to say that the yeah, strikes yeah, yeah. had to happen yeah. in the first place like 
that's what they were saying a lot of the protest in the, the speeches that sorry on the protest in Fallowfield but it's a staff issue as well like there's there's no communication between what they're supposed to be doing you know they had I think a weekend to plan for online teaching it was all very rushed and a lot of people had never used this new technology before so how could they be expected to provide the same standard of education to us you know we're not the open university this isn't what university is supposed to be um and I think that is then another step of communication that's been completely missed out and even say with the cleaners for halls, you know, they're having to go into these situations. There's, the, there's just so many different people that have maybe been forgotten in this situation. Um, even the security guards are having to either sort out these parties or the protests. You know, where's what safety do they have? What rights do they have? And where's the communication with who, what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to react? Because whatever they do, they get targeted anyway. I mean, as a first year student in halls, I'm quite disappointed with what's happened, obviously. It just feels like they're, they're half lying to us and half just not bothering to talk to us. I mean, the whole fences thing, it was, they said um, to guide people to certain entrances. It was completely, it, it wasn't to do with that at all. It was just to stop parties in Fallowfield. Because, for example, if I wanted to see my friends in Fallowfield, you know, just to have a couple of drinks, maybe play a couple of video games, I wouldn't be able to do that because I'm not in Fallowfield campus. But if they wanted to come to my campus in City, they'd be, they'd be allowed to do it because I could let them in through the gates. It's, it's just to stop the parties at Fallowfield because they were getting too big. But they're not saying that, they're denying it, and they're trying to be on the student side. But as doing that, they've lied even further. And I think it's just fairly the anger of the students. But it's a rightful anger from the students. You know, I have a friend who's the fresher at the moment in Fallowfield, and she's been immensely struggling to get mental health provision. Um, and I think the fences are just kicking the teeth, to be honest, because it was just, why? Because I know a lot of people on UM Love have been saying, I know we keep <laughs> linking back to this, but um, they've been saying, oh, it, it, people have compared they said you're not in a prison camp, for example, so you can't compare the fact that you're paying for these rooms um, and saying it's like a prison because they're two completely different things, which is true, but it's more the fact that they're paying to live in this place and they're not paying to be caged in and that is just a complete violation of their, I'm thinking of their rental contract and also their rights as a student because we are adults right now and there are better ways to prevent people partying or, you know, I don't think anything will really stop Fallowfield parties at this point. I mean, also, Fallowfield yeah. isn't the most attractive place. And just adding to the fences, uh, there's been studies that have shown, you know, living in attractive places actually helps your mental health. So I don't know whether they thought about that before putting all these metal fences in. Yeah, I also think with, with the parties aspect of it, if that is the reason that they did it, um, it's sort of brought a bad stigma on students I think because although yeah maybe they are having some parties in lockdown I mean we hear about people that are having like 300 person weddings and these are adults and so I don't know why I mean a lot of students probably are breaking the rules but then I'm sure a lot of students are also obeying them and it's a lot harder for students to obey them when they're at uni than it is for the typical adult that like as you said that lives in a nice house and it's their home and it's comfortable for them but do you think the media is playing up to a bit? Because I've seen quite a, a few comments um, about how sort of people would never employ any of these students that are protesting and things like that, and that they should be more grateful. But um, 
yeah I do think it's a bit harsh on the students and yeah I mean everyone I'm sure everyone knows someone that is breaking the rules at the moment so that's the issue I had with the people that have have been abstaining from parties and protests um still facing these restrictions I know um people that do um health courses so like optometry or medicine if they get caught breaking the rules they're threatened to be kicked off their course so even if they did want to go and protest for their rights at the fact that they'd have zero mental health provision that they have fences put them in their halls they still can't go and protest because they'll get kicked off their course the email service i emailed nancy rothwell after the the fence thing and got obviously a generic email back from one of her I don't know, admin people just saying, oh, you know, sorry, if you want some support, here's a link. I followed the link and I just got, go on a walk and make a cup of tea. So <laughs> um, I can completely understand why these students are just wanting to shout, but then those who can't, what are they supposed to do? Because the support isn't there. And it, yeah, it really frustrates me. Also just this adding is- to that, um, when you're when you're implementing policy on such a scale and putting so much money into it, it was eleven thousand. You have to be realistic with one the polit- like the policy objectives and two like how effective the policy will be. For for how effective the policy will be, it's inevitable that first year students will have parties. That's that that is what first year students kind of life revolves around. Like and with a COVID time, obviously um, there is a lot of cutback on that, and the university should be telling students okay like you need to be sensible you need to follow the rules but like i said the inevitability is students will have uh, people over from other flats and they, they, they will end up having parties it's just an inevitable fact so therefore by responding to this inevitable fact by just putting fences around and with no communication and spending 11k on the fencing is not a solution to the reality that they were facing rather they should like jess was saying kind of approaching it from the mental health angle of building a better support network. Think how much money could be spent from that 11K on kind of developing a support network of informing students, giving students advice and helping them rather than thinking, right, they're having parties. So what we need to do is just restrict their movement. That's not going to address the butt of the issue. Cause at the end of the day, students, especially first years will always find a way to get drunk with their mates. Like some walls aren't gonna, isn't gonna stop that. Yeah, as you say, I, uh, it's inevitable that first years are gonna party, I think this i would assume was one of the student lifestyle things that the university had promised them to come to halls and that they would be able to enjoy um so this is one of the things they're protesting about at the moment is being sold to this like false lifestyle Uh, another one is taking the um university fees down to the same level as the open university which i think is like stick around 6100 what do you guys think about this I think that's valid because we are getting essentially the same services as people enrolled um, in Open University. Um, And that's part of the Safer Campaign's platform, actually. One of their demands is to lower uh, fees to those of Open University. And they're appealing to the university to try and get that taken up with uh, the UK government. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if any students would object to that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess it would have to depend on sort of where the money um is coming from to sort of bridge that gap between our fees um because obviously it's not really anyone's sort of fault it's not the lecturer's fault it's not the university's fault that all have to be put online i mean i know from what my lecturers have saying have been saying that they're really adamant to get back into the classroom they don't want to be doing it online um so no one should have to sort of suffer for that but obviously if there's 
a way that it could be done, um, then I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I do wonder, do open university lecturers get the same wage as University of Manchester lecturers? Because if University of Manchester lecturers are on a higher wage, then you could immediately see why the, the government might reject these um, demands to lower the fees. Uh, I don't know whether anybody has any more information on that. I don't know, but I do agree with, I think, I think it's, it's not the university's fault that Corona's happened. So I think it would have to be like a government bailout that would lower the fees for students because the uni is still providing us with an education. If, like they're doing, they're doing their best, possibly. I don't know, that's not what we said, but you know, they are, they are still providing us an education. So I think they have in theory upheld their end of the bargain. So it would, it wouldn't be like them, their money that would be refunded, if that makes sense. Um, it would have to be like the, the money that goes from the student finance service to the uni, which we don't really touch. Um, but I think, yeah, it does, it does seem, I think I just feel sorry for everyone that started uni this year because they could have gone to the open union, got the same experience for so much cheaper. It does seem to be a little bit just useless, the fact that we're all here. And I know a lot of people on, again, UOM love, um, <laughs> the voice of the people, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but they've all been saying like, you know, the, conspiracy theories about the fact that the uni just wanted to get us back into Manchester so we'll start paying rent and then they just kind of cancelled everything um but again I, I think that's just it's just the way that the pandemic has um has kind of occurred and I I think it's more the fault of the government and their response to coronavirus and the actual uni themselves um, not to say that the uni's response has been perfect because as we've just said it it hasn't um but I, I just, it's just such a tricky situation and there's such a lot of money involved. It's just, I don't have it, like any answers for it at all. So some more hopeful news. Um, mass testing has been proposed ahead of the winter break for all um, students planning on heading home. So this would be between the 30th of November and the 6th of December. Um, uh, and yeah, as I say, just before the winter holidays to avoid a spike in coronavirus cases and people taking them back home to their families. Um, previously, there's been talk of a student-wide isolation all over the country for two weeks. Um, however, this type of rapid testing has already been seen at De Montfort and Durham and has seemed to go down well. So I think this will be a more hopeful and I think students will definitely see this as a more positive way of dealing with that problem. I'd like to just quickly say uh, about that. Uh, yeah, I read this article this morning um, and I think, although it's a great a great initiative and I'm really behind uh, mass testing, of course, we need to do that for the students. Um, it is a little bit annoying though, obviously, with, um, with those dates, obviously. I've got an assessment due, not like maybe a couple of days after that. So having to like prepare to go home in that week and also write my essay is gonna be quite stressful. Also, I, I was looking forward to having like a final kind of Christmas goodbye with my housemates. And if we're gonna be forced to go home between like that, those two dates. And then I think, I think the 9th of November is, 9th of December, sorry, is like the, the cutoff um, that they're proposing. So yeah, it might just put plans with housemates and flatmates and course mates just at, a, at an end really, which is quite annoying, especially with me in my final year. We always have like a Christmas dinner in my house. And yeah, if that's not gonna happen, um, at an appropriate time, then that's going to be quite irritating. But I think the actual uh, the actual thing itself with, with mass testing is is definitely a huge step forward. I think they're also talking about staggering going home times, though, so that might mean 
it goes later. I, I agree with you. I would prefer to be here until the 18th because I would like to say happy Christmas to my friends. Yeah. Um, but I think it's better than having to quarantine for two weeks in my house here and then go home and quarantine for the two weeks because yeah. we're only I think we've only got four weeks for Christmas so if you're having to quarantine for two of those it just seems like but I think that's ridiculous. what they're trying to do so if you have the test you can then still quarantine and make it home for Christmas in the in that oh, time here yeah if you're positive so right. you have to stay in Manchester but then once you've had those two weeks you can then still make it home albeit not like have that long period but you would make it home for Christmas yeah it'll be interesting to see what they do I guess yeah because I'd assume they'd be staggering test times as well. Because I think there's been some issues in Liverpool, hasn't there, with mass testing? Yeah. About big groups gathering outside the testing centres. With the way that our university is, like, I wouldn't be surprised if there's just a huge delay with mass testing and it just doesn't get done, to be honest with you. But yeah, hopefully it does. It's definitely given me some hope, though. Everything was looking really bleak last week when they were announced lockdown. I was like, OK, well, it's just going to be another March, isn't it? But it's 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 good news it's you know finally something is happening i'm just fingers crossed our incompetent government will actually do something right for once <laughs> this year because um, i would love to go home and see my family at christmas but you know fingers crossed <laughs> thank you for tuning in and a special shout out to johnny hunt for production that's it for now you're in focus Right.